Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here with uh, another installation of Yahweh's Covenant People. My uh, sidekick again is William Fink. Uh, this evening we're going to start off with a, a quick discussion of what, what happened today. Uh, a Jewish congresswoman from uh, Arizona has been shot along with a judge, a very liberal judge, the, the, the judge that ruled against a, an Arizona farmer or rancher who was trying to keep illegal Mexicans off his property. And the damn stinking judge ruled against the, against the rancher and allowed these illegal aliens to file suit against this American rancher who has every right to keep illegal aliens and anybody, not just illegal aliens, anybody, off of his property. So that stinking judge deserved to die. Now, this Jewish woman, she is very liberal. She's one of the few liberals, uh, liberal Democrats, and they, they keep trying to tell us that she's a moderate Democrat, but uh, she's, uh, she's very left-wing on all issues, and they keep telling us that she's moderate on guns and pr- promotes guns, but the NRA, NRA and other groups uh, disagree with that uh, report, and so now she's in surgery. She got shot in the head, and uh, it's, it's obvious to me that what the uh, Rothschilds are doing is because they have lost control of the economy and need to stage one or more false flags. Now, I predicted this, this would happen a couple of years ago, although I put it in the context of they would probably assassinate Obama and blame it on a white nationalist and then uh, you know, declare martial law. Okay, that's exactly what they plan to do. Uh, they're they're planning this die-off uh, of, uh, of of birds. They're obviously being killed by harp because their internal organs are being cooked, and the uh, the downblast of harp is is killing all these birds in the air. And you know it's not like they're you know, who knows how many more of the birds like in the middle of the woods. I mean these are birds that are landing in, in occupied areas, thousands of them, and it's not just in Arkansas. It's around the world. This is a real obvious harp exercise, and uh, I reported on uh, Thursday on the Restoration Hour of the HARP uh, Homeland Security FEMA plan to stage an exercise on May 16th to 20th, 2011, in Arkansas, just west of Memphis, okay? The same type of exercise they staged during 9-11, and during 5507 in London. Now, it's, it's amazing that, that uh, there's this coincidental exercise going on by the feds right at the same time that 9-11 you know, happened, right at the same time that 5507 happened. Folks, it's not coincidental. They're doing this deliberately. And so I, I warned everybody in Arkansas to be ready, get your cameras out, Photograph FEMA people, photograph Homeland Security, because we need to have evidence of their activities. We can't allow them to keep staging these false flags and blaming them on us. And that's exactly what they're doing here with this kill-off in, in Arizona. Yeah, the, uh, absolutely. Somebody asked the question, what, what about the birds? It's a harp-staged event, and they're, they're deliberately doing this because the international bankers have lost total control of the economy. They have no choice because otherwise, if, they, if the international bankers admit that they're, 
the ones responsible for the collapsing economy, which they are. Of course, they can't do that because that will make the American people even angrier. So they have to keep playing their games. They've always been planning on declaring martial law anyway. They've always been planning on uh, instituting a dictatorial one-world government. So now is the time because they really have no choice. Their, their hand has been forced because the economy can't be saved. And uh, you know, I, my other thought was they might try to invade Iran and uh, keep the fiat money engines rolling with another big war, right? And that would prolong the agony of the ultimate uh, world uh, collapse of the Federal Reserve note. But uh, it's obvious to me that the European powers and Russia and China weren't interested in having a war against Iran. So the Israelis had to back off. Now, having, having had to back off of that, now they're going to uh, declare martial law here in America, and they're going to stage more and more false flags. Blame it on, quote-unquote, patriot Americans, right? Uh, or actually, from their point of view, terrorists homegrown terrorists who are really Americans, okay? So I'm, I'm giving everybody the news. Get ready. It's coming quick, okay? So, uh, Bill, uh, you know, turn it over to you if you want to talk about this subject or if you just want to go uh, straight into Revelation. Uh, I'll leave that to you. Well, well, no, I don't. I can't talk about things that I haven't studied. I, I have noticed that the, um, the, the liberal media has been setting Obama up to be a fall boy. Right. Right. They've, they, they, I, I heard something on the news the other day, and, and I sit upstairs after dinner for about half an hour with, with my, um, my grandmother, and, and she turned the television on early the other night, which is rare for her, and the news came on. So I, I caught my first glimpse of network news in, in probably four or five years, right? Mm -hmm. Well, um, they actually had on a report about the Republican Congress reciting the Constitution. And, and right. But when when they got to the part about the Constitution requiring a president to be a citizen, <laughs> somebody in the gallery had gone berserk, yelling, "Accept Obama! Accept <laughs> Obama!" And and yeah. the news actually did make a big thing out of that. And and I've seen that a lot of the liberal newspapers are now publishing cartoons with very very blatantly anti-Obama themes. Uh -huh. So, so uh -huh. yeah, you know, this man was the glory boy of the media. He, he was their doll, and, right. and uh, he, he couldn't be criticized or reproached a year ago, mm -hmm. and, and now he's being set up, I think, to be some sort of fall boy, yeah. and, and he'll be blamed for the $2 trillion that the bankers walk away with. Right. Yeah, well, he and, did give them $2 trillion, dollars, didn't he? <laughs> well, well, right. And, 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 well, exactly, but he's the whole, all the blame's going to be placed on him, right. and, and he'll be a laughing stock in the media soon, right. and, and he'll probably be a one-term president, yeah. and he'll find a new sucker to run in, in right. 2012 and right. another fall. Another fall guy, right? Well, see, now, the poten it, it, yeah. now if, if they actually do assassinate Obama, then obviously they're going to blame it on some right-wing kook, right? Well, well, I don't know if they're going to assassinate Obama for this reason, and, and that's because they're trying really hard to hold the, the cadaver together so that they can raise <laughs> right. they can. It's a and the Obama right assassination would really set the Negro community off. Uh -huh. and, and that, that might set some oh, yeah. people Because I don't think that whites are going to put up with another Negro uprising like, like they, they staged yeah. in Martin Luther King assassination. I think whites are a little fed up with Negroes going berserk. Yes. I, I would hope. Yeah. 
And, and Negroes go berserk at the slightest, at, at the drop that's, of a coin. That's right. That's right. And they've been brainwashed and trained to blame Whitey for every little thing that goes wrong in the black community. You know, in spite of the fact they've had 50 years of welfare, 50 years of welfare to get their act together, and they still can't hold a job. They still can't well, run well, a right. I, the whole victimhood culture and and, and the, the excuse of sl- blaming slavery for, for um, looting yeah. and pillaging neighborhoods and stores and malls and stealing everything they could get their grubby hands on. I, I think those days are, are numbered. Yes. That, that yeah. whites continue to accept that behavior. I, I hope they're numbered anyway. That yeah. there's enough information on them out there now and right. enough people privy to it. Right. But I've been saying for years that the failing economy is going to force the Rothschild to do something drastic, and this is what it is. Because well, well, they they're, they're stir- they they tried to stir up war against Iran and it didn't work. Right. They they couldn't get popular support on their side. The Iranians weren't going to play the sucker, and and they now now it's Korea that they're trying to um foment trouble in Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're they're trying everything they can to redirect attention. Number one, the parasite does not want the spotlight shown upon it. Right. So that means the Jewish bankers in New York City. They don't want the spotlight being on them, and it hasn't been for a while. It was it was during the, the $2, billion, $2 trillion bailout, okay? The Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke and all, and all his people, they were getting scrutinized by the press, right? And so they can't have that. You know, they gotta keep they got to keep the spotlight off themselves and put it on something else. And so we had this uh, Gulf oil disaster. Now uh, we're having this assassination attempt. I think we're going to have more assassination attempts. And probably their last-ditch effort will be to get rid of Obama. And they always blame it on a right-wing kook. Now, the same thing happened uh, in the days of Kennedy. When they assassinated Kennedy, the first thing they came out with was, oh, this Lee Harvey Oswald is a right-wing kook, right? Well, then we found out he was a communist trained in the Soviet Union, okay? They always come up with this nonsense that the assassin is a right-winger, right? And uh, I think Brian uh, uh, captured a screenshot of the the named or the suspected assassin's uh, Facebook account. Yes. And the guy is definitely a communist. He's definitely a communist. Since he captured that, that Facebook page has been taken down. So it couldn't, have, it couldn't be him that took it down because he was under arrest, Right. So somebody else took it down for them. They don't want us to know that the guy is a communist, not a right-wing kook. All right? So they're going to keep doing this and keep doing this, and they're probably going to deface a synagogue or two, right? (laughs) Maybe even plant a bomb in a synagogue or two and keep blaming us people. And uh, I I think you're right. I think the American people have had enough of this nonsense. And, uh, you know, they're ready to start revolting. So, uh, you know, if that if that day has come, that day has come. Uh, the, the main thing is here that we got to be ready, folks. we got to be ready. And uh, Yahshua told us he, he'll come as a thief in the night. <laughs> but he also told us that he will always give us warning, that his prophets would warn the people of Israel when something's getting ready to happen. So be ready. Uh, start, to, you know, start getting your sanctuary out in the country prepared. Uh, prepare to... You know, meet with your friends and relatives, especially CI people, in some sort of sanctuary situation away from the big cities. 
and uh, you know, and do your best to, to get ready for what's going on. Okay. So uh, if you want to go to uh, uh, the Book of Revelation at this point, uh, I forgot. I, I would much rather talk about the Revelation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> where were we at? Where, where are the top where, chapter where did, five? Chapter five. Okay. All right. And uh, do you want to recap uh, things up to this point? Well, well, we we we've um we basically covered the message to the seven churches, right? And and mm-hmm. we saw that the two churches that were not criticized at all were Philadelphia, and, right. and that's the assembly that means in, from from the city that means brotherly love. I think that the names of those seven cities are are very important and also coincide very much with the messages to those seven assemblies. Yeah. And and Smyrna, which means anointing. And and um with that, when we recognize who the anointed of, of Yahweh are, of God are, and we love our brother and, and properly apply that term brother to limit it to those anointed people who are the children of Israel, the Anglo-Saxon Celtic people in the world today, mm-hmm. that, that's, you know, everything that we do should be ethnocentric, and, and we will have no criticism from God at the Day of Judgment. That's the message to the seven assemblies. The assemblies that did wrong did wrong because they they caved into sacramentalism instead of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Right. They did wrong because they caved into the fornication, the race mixing, and and it, that that is brotherly hate. But when you are a proponent of race mixing, uh, of race mixing, that's brotherly hate. That that's you right. Have. You hate your that's own people. Love. Yeah. And and right, exactly. And those assemblies are all criticized, and they all have problems on the Judgment Day. Yes, yes. And and that's the most important um, message, I, I believe, from the message to the seven assemblies. Now, now the um, Revelation chapter 4 was mostly a vision of, of the throne of Yahweh, and, and it was very symbolic and ties, ties together many Old Testament and New Testament symbols. I think that the meat of the historical um, interpretation begins here with Revelation, well, really with Revelation chapter 6, but but here with Revelation chapter 5, and I'd like to get into that. Okay. All right. So here we go. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written inside and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Of course, the number seven predominates throughout prophecy. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, (laughs) okay, who would be under the earth, right, (laughs) was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders says to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. I mean, can there be any doubt who this is? Well, well, there should be no doubt who this is. Joshua Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, That's right. and he is also the root of David. I have a lot of notes on this passage. Okay. So first, let, let me say that this is the, um, the, the Christian paradox, right? It is that Yahweh has come as one of his own offspring. 
This has been argued since the time of Christ uh-huh. among men. And for that reason, Christ asked, he challenged the Pharisees. If David then calls him Lord, how is, how is he his son? Right. And, and that's because in, in the, the very patriarchal Hebrew society, a father should never call his son Lord. Right. Well, well, if your son is God, you would have to call your son Lord. Right. And that's the only way Christ could be the root yeah. and the offspring right. of, of David. Mm-hmm. And now we see that in, in Matthew twenty two forty five. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? That he is God, Yahweh himself has in, having come as one of his own sons is the only way he could possibly be both the root and the offspring of David. Mm -hmm. It's the only way that he could take credit for sowing the good seed in in the parable of the wheat and the tares, which he says explicitly, he who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Mm -hmm. Now, um, of all of the sons of Adam, only Yahshua Christ is worthy to open the seven seals because only Yahshua is blameless and only Yahshua is God and only God himself can see the future. Mm-hmm. That's his challenge to um, to right. all of the false, the, the pagan idols in, in the book of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 44 or 45. His challenge is, show me the things that have been and the things that are to come, and, and then you will show us that you are gods, right? If you can't tell the future, you're, you're no god. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, yeah, you know, and you better be right if you try. And, and only God himself can see the future. This scroll is a metaphorical device, and it's about to be opened in, in these images which are related to John in, in the following chapters. Mm-hmm. The complete opening of the scroll is in stages, and first there are six seals, and then a seventh seal, which itself consists of seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet consists of the pouring of seven vials. Mm-hmm. So, so we see all these nested levels of of sevens, right? This number is very significant in in Revelation. Uh, I'd like to quote Isaiah 11, 1, and 10 to show the significance of of this this, um, branch and and the root of David. And and that's, um, and and I'll skip from 1 to 10, right? Mm -hmm. And and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. How could a root of Jesse stand in the future, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, yeah. the, the, root, the, the roots of the tree exist before the branches, basically. Right. The branches don't come out of the, the, the roots, right? Or the right. roots don't come out of the branches. Well, well, Ted Weiler would say that's literal imagery, and we're, we're talking about a literal tree with literal roots and literal branches, right? Well, well I guess he must, right? <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's how they interpret Genesis 3. So Genesis chapter 3, right? Yeah. It, it must be a little tree. Yeah. And, and Jesse is just going to spring a tree, and, and we'll yeah. know when, <laughs> when we see that kid, that tree, we'll know where Jesse's buried, right? Hey, it must be figs, though. It couldn't have been apples. <laughs> it had to be figs. Right. In, in, um, in, in Revelations chapter 22, verse 16, Christ says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to test my messenger, right? to testify unto you these things in the churches or assemblies. This is the King James Version. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now, now let me say that there are a few profane commentators, profane in more ways than one, who would pervert pervert Revelation 5.5 into saying something differently. And and they, they usually try to say that the Lion of Judah does not refer to Christ, 
and that somehow the Lion of Judah is the object of the verb rather than the subject of the verb, which okay. here is to overcome, right? right. And, and let me say that all of the Greek manuscripts, without exception, have the entire clause, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, mm-hmm. in the nominative case. Right, where it should be. Which make it, it makes the nominative case makes the entire clause the subject right. of the verb. Right. And no part of that clause could possibly be an object of the verb. Right. Of any verb. There's only one verb in a sentence, right? Right. It, it is also, yeah. a, it's also a grammatical device by which both phrases, the line of the tribe of Judah, and we write a comma in English, the root of David, right. both phrases are meant to refer to the same entity. Absolutely. A, a modern equivalent would be a sentence such as this. Today in the Big Apple, comma, New York City, right. comma, all of the airports were closed. Mm-hmm. And, and we read that in English, and we would know that the Big Apple is sort of like a nickname for New York City, right? Right, exactly. Well, well that, that would be an equivalent phrase in, in modern English. Yeah, it's an only somebody with, uh, Only somebody with an agenda rather than with the truth could read Revelation 5, 5 any other way. Mm-hmm. The King James Version has properly translated Revelation 5, 5. Right, right. Well, there's actually two verbs in there, you know, because it's a double sentence, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Okay, behold right. would be... Open is, is the, the infinitive, right? right. It's, it's, behold would be an exclamation, even though it sounds like a verb. It's actually an exclamation there. Right. right. Okay, so prevailed and to loose are the two verbs, and obviously the same person, which is the point you're making, the Ashur Christ, is the one doing both things. Well, well to open the book and the seven seals, that that entire that entire um, clause is the, properly the object of the verb, right? Exactly. Of, of the verb prevail, right? Okay. Well, where where the nominative nouns cannot be the object; they must be the subject right. of the verb. It, it's the nominative noun that has prevailed, right? Mm-hmm. And and that is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That entire clause is basically a a nominative noun. It's it's like a noun clause, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's really no doubt. And here I'd say the King James probably has it uh, very correct. And um, I think we mentioned this in the introduction and uh, in our previous discussions before this series that. It's hard for the King James translators to mess up the language here with a deliberate agenda because what they're translating is stuff they have no idea what it is it's about, right? So there's no agenda here. Perhaps we'll get a a few universalistic phrases here and there. But uh, by and large, uh, my impression of the King James Version translation of Revolution is it's very good. Well, well, it is. The only problem in the Revelation in translation is in Revelation chapter 14, okay. where they took a verb that means parched and that they rendered it as ripe. Uh, well, we'll get to that. It, it's very hard to do. I don't know how yeah. they did it, but they did it. <laughs> yeah. And but, um, that, that was a very major minimal. error. If that's the only oh, error. Right. Yeah. Now, now, that's the only error. There are other, um, many other differences in my own translation with the King James 
but they're not due to um, errors in King James translation. Mm-hmm. If they're due either to my own personal preferences right. or because there were problems with the manuscripts the King James was based on. Mm-hmm. Is the, manus- that the King James is based on a manuscript by Andreas of Caesarea, the medieval monk who, whose comments were placed into his manuscript. And, and there are very many long interpolations in the King James translation that don't belong there. Okay, right, right. But other than that, uh, what they have done, what the King James translators have done with Revelation is very good, by and large. You know, it doesn't contain all of the horrible translations, especially with that we found in the works of Paul. Well, well, right. They butchered Paul. They butchered some of Luke. They butchered Luke chapter two, and and several other areas. They that they butchered parts of Acts, mm-hmm. and and um, most for the most part, Matthew and Mark are, are except for the the problems with certain key words such as Gentiles mm-hmm. and, and Jews, Matthew and Mark and the Revelation do not have a whole lot of mistranslation. Okay, very good. All right. But those, the, those, the, those elements of the New Testament also do not talk about the, the mission of the nations, the promise to Abraham, and, and everything else that the Catholics have screwed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good. All right, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and of course we mentioned those four beasts being uh, back to verse 7, chapter 4, the four cardinal tribes or lead tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it has been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Okay, and of course, Yahshua Christ stands in our midst. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors or incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Any uh, commentary up to this point? Well, well yes. I, before we get to the, the next couple of verses, I do have some comments. Okay. That, because I'll have more comments on the next couple of verses. They're very important, right? Yeah. Oh, this, um, that the lamb, that the lamb that appeared as if it had been slaughtered, again, can only be Yahshua Christ, the mm-hmm. lamb of God. Yes. For which see John one twenty nine and John one thirty six, where, where John the Baptist proclaims him to be that very thing. And, and this was, um, a major point of contention with my, my the articles that Clay Douglas wrote that that I wrote uh, that I addressed in William Fink versus the Paul Bashers right. because Clay Douglas made the boneheaded comment that nowhere does it say that Christ was the Lamb of God to, to that who was going to be slaughtered uh-huh. and, and it's uh, evidently Clay Douglas thinks he's a Christian and he never read the Bible right. because John says in one twenty nine the next day John meaning the Baptist sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and then in one thirty-five and 36, it says, And again, the next day John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. There's only one reason why Christ would be the Lamb of God, and that's because he was going to be right. slaughtered sacrificially, right. which he was. Yes. Right. Now, the, the four living creatures are, are and, and we've probably discussed this, last week, right? The four living creatures are, are described much the same way 
Ezekiel described them as a part of the throne of Yahweh 700 years prior to John. It's important to understand this because it's important to understand that all of the symbology and the message of the Old Testament is also found here in the Revelation. And, and it's yeah. really one book, right? Mm-hmm. That this is only an extension of the same book. Right. It's not a different book. These are these, these are the same the, the same symbolically as the cherubs which sat upon the Ark of the Covenant. They're sphinx-like creatures that had the attributes of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle, mm-hmm. symbols from the standards of the four leading tribes of Israel. Right, right, yes. And so they're the ones we're supposed to follow, and we have definitely followed Judah and Ephraim, and because there, you know, Judah was given the scepter, Ephraim was given the birthright, Dan was the lead tribe in the sense of being a scout, and then uh, uh, who's the other one? The Reuben. Reuben, uh, I suppose, led us uh, down the road of sin, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we've been following. Reuben was wasn't Reuben one of the ones who had who had taken a different wife? Uh, well, I... well, Reuben had taken one of Jacob's um, not not his own mother Leah, right? But right. Jacob's concubines. I think the testament of Dan says that it was Bilhah, the mother of Dan. Okay. I, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And, right. and um, that, that that's the, the that reflects the Hebrew tradition anyway, right? Right. And, and um, it, it says that he entered into her and and um, mm-hmm. violated her. So his symbol is the man, and uh, apparently reflects our you know our uh, mortal sinful nature. Okay. Nevertheless, that that is to be overcome as well. All right, verse 9, and they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book. Uh, okay, yeah, I missed that before, a new song. The new song saying, and this, of course, the new song is the gospel, which is based on our ultimate restoration, okay, and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain, and well, there's that word slain again, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And, of course, this is the verse that the universalists love to universalize. Well, well, right, but it's absolutely, it, it means absolutely the opposite. <laughs> the, the, um, oh, okay, and it made them a kingdom of priests for our God, and they shall rule over the earth. Is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me say that... Um, First, let me say that the story of the prophets was that the, the children of Israel would be scattered among the nations, and, and then, then they would be regathered in the land given to their fathers, which we can argue and, and believe to be is northern Europe, and, and we can argue that based on 2 Samuel 7.10 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Yes. Now, aside from that, this word redeem, that this, you know, these people that Yahshua has has come to save were redeemed. Right. They were purchased with his blood. Right. Okay? Now, out of each tribe and tongue and people and nations, the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would become many nations. Mm-hmm. Historically, it can be demonstrated that by this time, they had already become many nations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, out of each... That out of every, that word is translated in my version, out of each tribe and tongue and people and nation. Okay. And, and the, the Greek to that can be discussed at, at length. It's, um, 
I don't have it handy. Right. right. But the word kindred you're saying should have been translated as tribe. Well, well, yes, it, okay. it, it is tribe, and and I'm looking at I'm looking for the Greek now as yeah. we speak. And of course, only Israel was redeemed. <laughs> okay, no other nation outside of Israel were redeemed, and and the word or the words out of means that they were selected out of and and collected out of all these other nations. So that's very exclusive. So redeemed is well, exclusive. Well, right. Out of is exclusive, and kindred, uh, you say tribe, it's got to be a, 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 in. in Exclusive, referring only to Israelites. Well, well, right now, now the um, the word passes ek passes is out of every, and and literally it can be interpreted as out of every. But with the word pass, and and I can demonstrate this with the Liddell and Scott lexicon, the word pass is all of a whole. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and very often that whole is predetermined. And when it's predetermined, it can't be simply well, when there's more um, – well, when, when, when there's a greater number of things than a particular unit may have, that, then it doesn't necessarily have to be translated every. It can be translated each mm-hmm. because in context, we are talking about a particular group. Right. Now, right. now passes – that that pas can be translated each when when it signifies all of a whole should make perfect grammatical sense to mm-hmm. any reasonable person. Of of course, there are people who are still going to want to translate it every and include people with whom the covenant was never made. Right now, now that is not only illogical but it's dishonest. Right when we look at the content of the covenants as they are spelled out yeah. in the scripture. Yeah. However, we have this other word, redeemed, mm-hmm. okay, that, that we have to take a good look at because this word alone will prove beyond a doubt that this is only for the children of Israel right. because right. when you look at the law of kinsman redemption, okay, yeah. which is what's being referred to here, the purchase with blood for one's own brethren, or with money for one's own brethren, right, is the ancient Hebrew law of the kinsman redeemer. And if you are not a kinsman to the redeemer, you have no part with him in the first place. We see this in the law at Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 49, where the King James has, quote, And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him waxes poor and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner by thee or to the stock of the stranger's family. After that, he is sold. He may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Mm-hmm. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or any that is nigh of kin right. unto him of his family may redeem him or if he be able, he may redeem himself. Now, now, related scriptures abound in both the Old and the New Testaments. And the Old Testament passages, I'm going to state below, are, are, they all use a specific word, which the King James Version usually translates into a, a simple word, to redeem. Mm-hmm. Yet, there's a much greater meaning in the underlying Hebrew. The word is gaal. It's G-A-apostrophe-A-L. Strong's number 1350. And Strong defines it thus, 
to redeem according to the oriental law of kinship, i.e., to be the next of kin, and as such, to buy back a relative's property mm-hmm. or marry his widow, etc. Right. So, so you are being a gayal when you redeem your brother's property or when your brother dies and you take his wife and raise up children in his name, you're, you're fulfilling this role of redeemer. Yeah, as, 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 as with Ruth, the, right? Well, well, right. As strong, exactly. Ruth is a perfect example. It had to be the next of kin. Yeah. The next of kin couldn't do it, so it was the second next of kin. Proving she was an Israelite. <laughs> right. Now, now, nobody else could come along and redeem Ruth. It had to be the next of kin. It had to be somebody related to Ruth. Mm-hmm. Christ only came to redeem Israelites who sold themselves under sin, and I'll quote those scriptures in a few minutes. Okay. Now, as Strong's also attests, the King James Version has also translated this word in several places to reflect all of those meanings in certain contexts in the Old Testament. Here I have a few of those words. Leviticus 25.25, If thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then he shall redeem, meaning as a kinsman, Mm -hmm. that which his brother sold. Right. Okay? KJV, Psalm 74.2, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, Mm -hmm. this Mount Theon. That's a direct reference to the redemption of Israel in the Psalms, right? right? And, And David or the psalmist is talking to God. Yeah. Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed kinsmen of, the, the redeemed, meaning the redeemed kinsmen right. of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. How does the gospel to Luke open up? In, in Luke 1, 68 to 80, we see Luke say, in, and, and, and Luke writes it, but it's, it's said, Yahweh says it through the Zechariah, through John the Baptist's father, that he has come to save us from our enemies. Yes. Can we imagine that our enemies can be saved? <laughs> well, that certainly not. That makes no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. King James That's why the Jews can't be Judahites, <laughs> because they rejected oh, any redemption. King James Version, Isaiah 62, 12. And they shall call them, meaning Israel, the holy people, the redeemed uh-huh. of Yahweh. Yeah. And he's talking to Israel. Who did Yahweh, who did Yahshua come to redeem? Yeah. And thou shalt be called sought out a city not forsaken. That phrase sought out must refer to the hunters of Jeremiah 16. Mm-hmm. Well, sought out of every kindred, <laughs> this verse 9. Now, now the idea uh, that Israel was sold in sin, which is the reason why they have to be redeemed. Right. And, mm-hmm. and and therefore that Israel had to be redeemed is also found explicitly in Scripture. For instance, and I'll quote Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 52.3, which is also a Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 50, verse 1, Thus says Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or to which of my creditors... Is it to whom I have sold you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Behold, for your iniquity, you have sold yourselves. And for your transgression is your mother, meaning the nation, yeah. put away. Uh, Yahweh's telling Israel that they sold themselves. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, they have to be redeemed. 
Yes. Nobody else. Who else can be redeemed? Nobody else fits into this picture. Right. Only the children of Israel can be redeemed. It's the natural genetic children of Israel that sold themselves into sin. Right. Isaiah 52, 3. For thus says Yahweh, you yourselves, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Redeemed by blood. Right. <laughs> well, right. Paul, exactly. Uh-huh. Paul. The blood Romans of your kinsman redeemer. Yes, exactly. Paul, Romans seven fourteen. He makes the confession, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Mm-hmm. And and only Israel was under the law, and therefore Paul says in Galatians chapter four, he he gives the very reason why Christ came to die on the cross in the first place, giving his blood as the price for his redemption of these same Israel people. And and um, once this understanding is obtained, right. once and for all, the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly converge right. as one and the same book, and, and they tell a consistent story from cover to cover. Right. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, from my translation, says, And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. So so the redemption with blood is only for those Old Testament children of Israel. The the universalists, they can't squeeze anybody else into that picture anywhere in Scripture. Right, right. And and that's explicit from the mouth of Paul. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but their interpretation of the word Gentile is what they would say. Well, he came for the Gentiles, so this this can't be. Well, well no, he came for the nations that right. Israel <laughs> that, that, that would be a it, false statement. Yes, they're putting things into the scripture that do not belong there. That's they're right. adding to the word of God, and the Book of Revelation lays a curse on anybody who adds to the word of God. So does Deuteronomy four two. <laughs> right. Well, so, well, yes, it does. Both, it does. Uh, both Old and New and, Testaments curse people who would add or subtract from the Word of God. Very good, very good. But in the same, well, pre- go ahead if you have more. Well, well, no, I, I wanted to talk about the kingdom of priests. But if you have more on the on the well, I just began. wanted to, along the lines of what you're talking about, the Greek word apollumi confirms the consistency of the Old Testament and the New Testament because. Contrary to the way that word is translated as lost, it actually means exiled. It means put away in punishment. So that well, well, if you open the Liddell and Scott Intermediate Greek Lexicon based upon the seventh edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English Lexicon, uh-huh. which is in turn actually based upon Passau's famous and great German Greek Lexicon, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well um, if you open this book, which was printed... I have a, a facsimile edition of it. It was originally printed in 1898. And you open it to the Greek word apolumi, you'll see that it can mean destroyed, but you will also see profane Greek writers who use the word to mean ruined and driven off from one's homeland. Right. And that's exactly the wording Liddell and Scott used right. to, to, to illustrate the way the word was used in certain secular writers. And that's exactly the way the word should appear in the New Testament. And, and, you know, it's it's being a translator 
it, it's not um, very efficient to write ruined and driven off from one's homeland every time you want to write one word to represent Apolumi. Yeah. And, and so even I have written lost for Apolumi. Mm-hmm. However, shame, we should shame, always... Shame, shame on you, Bill. <laughs> okay, we, we should always understand yeah, right. that word lost, and sometimes I believe I have it as driven off, but okay. it should always be... The, the lost should always be translated in one's mind to that the driven off sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, yes. And that can't apply to... The Chinese can't be applied to the Africans, can't really apply to anybody except the Israelites, period. Well, well right. Yeah. And, and it could even be translated divorced if one wanted to. Right. Yeah. Because okay. that, that's what you would do to a wife right. who you were driving <laughs> off from your home. Right, right. And that, that's another word. Divorce from the Old Testament and New Testament is also exclusive to Israel. So with all these exclusive terms, and of course the, the universalists, that's why they translate these words in a twisted form, where lost does not capture apolumi as you have just described it. Okay? Right. No, it, this it, does not it actually doesn't. Yeah, and that's why my translation comes with thousands of footnotes. They're right. just not online. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, but uh, go ahead with what you were uh, planning to say. Well, well, a kingdom of priests, and, and I wanted to talk about this, bec- well, well, first because it's mentioned in this verse, right? It's mentioned explicitly in the verse of, of um, in verse ten of this pericope, and and have made them a kingdom of priests for our God. It, it note that it doesn't say and has made priests for them in the kingdom of our God, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It, it says that they are a kingdom of priests for our God. It does not designate a, a special, separate priesthood. Yeah. The idea of a Christian priest does not exist in, in the, and, and I've said this before here several times, in the anti-Nicene fathers, in, in the anti-Nicene church writers, those who wrote, the, those early bishops and, and Christians who wrote on Christianity before the Council of Nicaea. You okay. won't find the term Christian priest. Right, right. Because all Christians in their own right should be priests. Right. And there should be no professional Christian priesthood. Right. The yeah, yes, of Paul the explains yeah. that we need teachers and, and we need people that, that are that have certain talents to fulfill certain offices. Right. right. But that does not um that, that does not license an official mm-hmm. Christian priesthood. Yeah. Well, those, think, who do, yeah. The, those who do the will of God are doing the service to God that he requires and therefore they are all priests of God. Right. There is nothing in Christianity which requires the, that performance of any special ritual. Mm-hmm. We are merely told, A, to keep his commandments, and B, to love our brethren in action and not in speech only. And right. by doing those things, we achieve the execution of the true Christian priesthood. Right. The idea that each and every Israelite who does the will of Yahweh is a priest of Yahweh belongs to the Old Testament as well as the New, and it is evident from Exodus chapter 19 as well as from the epistles of Peter and Paul and elsewhere here in the Revelation. Yeah. While Paul does not refer to this priesthood status of Christians explicitly in those letters which we have, he does often use a, a certain Greek word. The word is 
liturgia, and the words related to it, the, the nouns and verbs that come from it, in reference to the deeds which common Christian people perform in obligation to their duties of God. Mm -hmm. The meaning of this word, which bears the very meaning of a service performed for a God, right. is another word which is hidden in translation. Yes. The professional priesthood, well, where it's usually translated simply service, right? The yes. professional priesthood has adopted this word for their own purposes, and they merely translate it as liturgy. Right. And, and and that's where we get that word liturgy from. Which and means Athens, the, the, the words they recite during the services rather than deeds. Well, 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 well right. And, and it really, in Paul's writing, it, mean, it means the deeds that Christians do for their brethren. Mm -hmm. Not the words recited during that's some... That's another perversion, exactly. It, yes. It's a clear perversion. It's a Catholic perversion. <laughs> Catholic, right. In, in Athens, the word like liturgia was used to describe those services which men either chose or were elected to freely provide for the public. Right. When Christians so provide duty. their so brethren, yes. mm -hmm. when Christians provide for their brethren, that is their liturgy and they are fulfilling their Christian priesthood. Right, right. But for Catholics, it means if you recite the ritual that they have given it to you in in your daily missal or whatever you know, the the bulletin they give you and you know to hand you when you go to a church service, that that's liturgy to a Catholic. Well, well, that's liturgy to a Catholic, but it's not liturgy, liturgy to God. Mm. I'll tell you what it is to God. It, yeah, it's, it's vain and babbling, repetitive speech right? that He tells us not to engage in. Yeah, that's right. what that is. Yeah, yeah, and. Right. and that they perverted that whole thing yeah. to to support their professional priesthood. Right, it's true. And, and none of it is yeah. based on Scripture. I'd like to quote Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Okay. Now, therefore, if you, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests mm -hmm. and a holy nation. These are the right. words which thou shalt speak under the children of Israel. Yeah, That's, that expression is a kingdom of priests, not a not, or you know what, what am I trying to say? The, uh, a uh, what are you not a not, not a kingdom that needs priests, right? right. A kingdom right. of That's, priests. I'm trying to think what the Catholic priests call themselves. They have different orders of priests, right? I guess uh, I know what I could call them. They're, they're, they're <laughs> it's it's not an order of priests segregated or divorced from the people of Israel, okay? And that's what Catholic priests are. That's what Protestant priests are. That's what all these priesthoods are. They're divorced from the from the people from the kingdom. They're divorced well, from well, the congregation. And and the entire idea of of liturgy, I'll say it in English, right? Mm -hmm. Originally was the services you perform for a God. Okay. Our God requires us to love our brethren and keep his commandments. Yes. You do that, you're a priest. Right, right. That's and all you have to do. You do that, you're a priest. Yeah. And then the, you're a priest of Yahweh. Yeah, now not all of the all of the parables talk about the kingdom. Every single one. It's not a gospel of person of salvation. It's a gospel of the kingdom, right? And then several of these where, where uh, Yahshua gives examples of the kingdom, he says the kingdom is like a household. It's a household. Okay? Every male head of household is to be the king and the priest of that household. And his wife is the queen, 
although it's not clear that whether she is to be a priestess, but she certainly serves her husband and her family as the husband serves her and their family. That's the kingdom. That's you know, that's why the family is the building block, quote unquote, of the Christian, true Christian family. Okay, that that's the building block of the kingdom. And of course, we're supposed to say separate from the other races of the earth. Okay. All right. Uh, any more before we go into verse eleven? No, we could go to verse eleven. Okay, very good. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. Now, of course, now we understand who these beasts and elders are. The mainstream Judeos have, probably have no clue who the beasts are. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So, boy, a whole lot, right? <laughs> Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Well, there it is again. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and also the kingdom. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all them that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Okay, so this, I would say, chapter 5, and actually uh, both chapters 4 and 5 are really in a side or a sidestepping of the prophetic record that was already established in the first three chapters, okay? And so I just want to point out to everybody that the book of Revelation is like a movie that has flash-forwards, flash-backs, and then it tells little side stories too, right? <laughs> and so that's what four and five are. They're little side stories, but they refer to the kingdom, okay? They're significant for us. But they're, they're not in the chronological prophetic record that much of the book of Revelation is. And let's well, well, right. It's not part of the, right, right. It's not part of the, the, um, the, the revelation of the history that's about to happen. Right, right. And so let's see what chapter six has in store for us. And I saw when well, the Well, land, I have oh. some comments on, on five here. I, oh, I mean, okay. we just, yeah, you know, the, I thought uh, I said it all. <laughs> Please, go ahead. Well, well just, uh, this, this is important to grasp, and, and there's a reason why the, these things are being, you know, that, that this lamb is being associated with this throne, and, and that the sovereignty is going to be his for the eternal ages. And, and it ties to, in with the big picture, right? Yeah. And, and that's important. And, and first, I'd like to say the ten thousands of ten thousands must be a vision of the saints or holy ones of Yahweh, the redeemed of our race, and, and we'll see a lot more of that in the chapters which follow. And, and yet, you know, when we see, we see where Jude quotes the writings of Enoch, that when Yahshua returns, he comes with, quote, ten thousands of his saints to, judge, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds to which they have ungodly committed. So these saints must be with him long before his return, right? Uh, I mean, it's not yeah. that we're all going to suddenly come alive at the last day of judgment because these people are with him yes. now. Uh, right. And, and that's, I, I think we have to make that clear. Right. And, and um, Well, yeah, I just interject here because there are some even in identity who say that when you die, 
your uh, your personality, your soul just disappears. Well, well right, and, and, that's, and that's what I'm driving at. Right, that's, that's totally that's crazy. not true, and, and there's a lot of scriptural evidence against that point. Yes. Now, now, here we have a profession of those very same people, which at one time rejected Yahweh as their king, that he is indeed sovereign, and rightfully so, for Yahweh himself only. Yahweh himself can justly rule over his people, and, and this is the overall picture, and here the revelation is, is um, reminding us of that, right? In, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that the children of Israel demanded an earthly king, thereby rejecting the sovereignty of Yahweh. Right. They rejected his sovereignty, and, and he states that, and, and this is summarized in 1 Samuel 10.19, quote, and you have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your thousands. Mm-hmm. This is the overall story of history and the Bible. We, our ancestors, rejected the sovereignty of God. We still do. Every single time we expect something from the government, that we look for help from the government, we are once again rejecting the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. Because we're looking to a different God. We're looking to Franklin Roosevelt to take care of us in our old age. So we're going to vote for him because he's promised us social security. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a perfect example of that. They looked to the government for God, and that's why we are undergoing this period of punishment that we're in right now. Oh, right. Yeah. Because our our near ancestors again rejected the sovereignty of God and again worshipped the government for a handout or a trade-off or Mm -hmm. security. That's right. That's right. Very good. Very good. Okay, chapter 6. And I saw yes, well, I have some long introductory material to chapter six. six. I, I, okay. I hate to tell you. Right. Yeah, I want to show how old the historical interpretation of the revelation is. Okay. And, and um, there, there is a writing in the works of Irenaeus, a bishop of Lugdunum, which... That sounds like Ireland. Now, it's now, yeah, yeah, right, it does. It's a Celtic name. Yeah. It's now Leon's, in, in, Leon's, Lions, I'm probably butchering that. Okay, name. right. I don't like French. Right? Lions lawyer. <laughs> well, well, Lions, right. Yeah. In, in France, that, that's ancient Lugdunum. Irenaeus was a bishop there. And, and th- this writing reveals the insight this man had into the Revelation, and it also shows that the historical view of prophecy is the earliest and original view of prophecy. And Irenaeus dies circa 202 AD. So it's generally believed that he wrote this treatise entitled Against Heresies circa 180 AD. That's only about 90 years after the revelation was put to papyrus by the Apostle John. Okay. Here's a chapter. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read part of the chapter. From Irenaeus chapter 26, book 5 of Against Heresies. And, and yet, yeah, for our purposes here, I, I've abridged it, but I'll push, I'll publish the entire chapter in my notes on, on Christrike, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for this, for this chapter of Revelation. Chapter 26 is subtitled, John and Daniel have predicted the dissolution and desolation of the, of the Roman Empire. 
which shall proceed to the end of the world in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's also subtitled, and I won't read this part, the Gnostics are refuted, those, those tools of Satan who invent another father from, different from the creator. Yeah. But, right, because Irenaeus did a lot to address the Gnostics in his writings also. Right. But this alone shows, you know, he's writing in, second, in the second century A.D. Right. towards the end of it, and, and when Rome was at, the, the the peak of its power, and Rome was in a period of relative peace and prosperity yeah. within the bounds of the empire in, right. in, in what's the AD. And, and he's writing that John and, and Daniel are, are predicting its dissolution, its That's destruction. Right. Yeah, he understood Uh-oh. both Daniel and Revelation. Most, Absolutely. most modern day Christians don't. <laughs> well, well, right, but it's easy to say, oh, that this book predicts the demise of Rome when the Goths are, are, are in the walls, right? Yeah. But, well, this the, 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 this is long before that time. Right. This is long. Be, this is two hundred years before the Goths are in the walls. Uh, right? Question: Does uh, Irenaeus uh, state from Daniel that uh, he understands that we're talking about the Babylonians? The Medes and Persians and the Greeks. Well, and it, the he seems to, but but I, I don't. I, I didn't really okay. read that. I, well, I, I well he must. I, I didn't go on to research that. Yeah. But I believe he probably did understand. Yeah, that. he must. Otherwise, he, he wouldn't say that Rome was the last of those four, right? Well, well, this is a pretty long paragraph, and, and I'm going to read it. Right? Okay. And and it's still clear. This is a quote from Irenaeus, and it's still clear light. John has John in the Apocalypse indicated to the Lord's disciples what shall happen in the last times. Now, now, as my own statement, I would say that he must have known that we are now in the last times, for which I, I would mm-hmm. recommend that people see Hebrews 1, 2, and 1 John 2, yeah, 18. The last days, children, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, now, to continue with the quote, and concerning the ten kings who shall then arise, among whom the empire which now rules the earth shall be partitioned. He teaches us what the horn shall be, which were seen by Daniel, telling us that it had been said to him, quote, subquote, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as of yet, but shall receive power as if kings one hour with the beast. Now, now that's a much later chapter in the Revelation than where we're at. Right. They, these have one mind to give their strength and power to the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and the king of kings. It is manifest, therefore, that of these potentates, he is, who, who are to come, he shall slay three, he is to come, I'm sorry, the language is difficult. Of these potentates, he who is to come shall slay three, and subject the remainder to his power, and that he shall give their kingdom to the beach, to, to the beast, to the beach, and put the church to flight. After that, they shall be destroyed by the coming of our Lord. For that, the kingdom must be divided and thus come to ruin. Mm-hmm. The Lord declares when he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Daniel also says particularly that, the end of the fourth kingdom consists in the toes of the image mm-hmm. seen by Nebuchadnezzar, upon which came the stone cut out without hands, and as he him, does himself say, 
the feet were indeed the one part iron and the other part clay until the stone was cut out without hands and struck the image upon the iron and clay feet. Now, now this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And dashed them to pieces, even to the end. Then afterwards, when interpreting this, he says, and as thou sawest the feet and the toes, partly indeed and par- partly indeed of clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, and there shall be in it a root of iron, as thou sawest iron mixed with baked clay, and the toes were indeed one part iron, but the other part clay. The ten toes, therefore, are these ten kings among whom the kingdom shall be partitioned. Mm-hmm. Some indeed shall be strong and active or energetic, and others shall be sluggish and yeah. useless and shall toe, not... A big toe and a little toe. <laughs> All right. Now, now this, uh, this part's good. And as, and as also Daniel says... Some part of the kingdom shall be strong and shall be and part shall be broken from it, as thou sawest the iron mixed with the baked clay, there shall be minglings among the human race. Uh-huh. Very good. Very good. But no, identity. <laughs> but, but, well, right. It's it's right exactly. <laughs> but no cohesion one with the other, just as iron cannot be welded on to pottery ware. Right. <laughs> now, well, well, not all of what I say, I, I running is said is perfect. And and let me tell you, not everything I'm going to say about the revelation in Daniel, yeah. I, I expect to be perfect either. Right. Sure. There are a few things which are plainly evident in his writing, which are most important. Right. The first is. That he saw in both Daniel and Revelation a historical fulfillment of prophecy. That is exactly what traditional Christian identity, as defined by Rand, Comparay, Swift, and, and those of us who follow them, that's what we also see. This is also the view of prophecy that the Reformers had. Mm-hmm. And none of this is anything like the preterist and the futurist imaginings of the Jewish Jesuits, which most mainstream sects cling to today. Yes. yes. Another. Okay. Another important aspect of Irenaeus' interpretation of Daniel is that from Daniel chapter 2, he fully understood, as modern Christian identity also recognizes, <laughs> but the mainstream sects do not, that Rome was destined to fail because of minglings among the human race. Yes. And, and that's a reference to Daniel 2.43. And Rome did that same thing in, its, in, the, in the centuries before its fall. They, they race next. Right. Today... Right. We are also besieged by that very thing, and therefore, the fall of this modern world is also imminent. Right. That's why the Catholic Church is going to fail, too. It already has failed, but it will come crashing down. Yes. Well, well, right. Uh, On at least these two issues, and and many more can be illustrated, it is Christian identity which represents traditional Christianity, that of the earliest Christian writers, and not the modern Judaized sect. Period. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah, and then I would just add that because we stick to biblical symbolism, both Old Testament and New Testament, we're not wandering away from the proper symbolism that we're supposed to employ in interpreting these scriptures, whereas the Judeo-Christians simply dream things up (laughs) and say, well, it must mean this, it must mean that. And the the Roman church must be reborn, okay? Even though in in Revelation chapter 17, it says, no, 
<laughs> there's going to be a seventh beast and an eighth beast. When, when well, Rome well, is right. clearly the sixth. The, the power of Rome was reborn, and, and we'll discuss that when we get to Revelation. Yeah, but it's past from our perspective. Yes, it is past. The power of the empire is the first beast of Revelation 13. Yeah. And, and the power of the, the papacy is the second. Mm-hmm. And, and that will be demonstrated from a comparison of Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7 when we get to that point. Right. Okay. Now, the um, Irenaeus saw the fourth kingdom of Daniel. As, I'm sorry, Irenaeus saw the fifth kingdom uh-huh. of Daniel as, as the body of Christians in, in the world, yes. the assembly, not not the church in the Catholic sense. Right. Because Irenaeus, Irenaeus did not use the word ecclesia in the Catholic sense, and and even though the translators take ecclesia in Irenaeus and translate it as church, mm-hmm. he really didn't understand. The Catholic sense, and sure. the later popish. Well, yeah, it means congregation. It doesn't mean church. Well, well of right. Course, and, Catholics and the, and the, the Protestants think it means church, and it doesn't. Right. The, the believing children of Israel in the Scripture, right. in the Acts, and in Corinthians, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, they were considered to be the assembly, the ecclesia, whether or not they were gathered. Mm-hmm. And, and like Clifton likes to say, when you see a white man walking down the street, you're looking at the ecclesia, right? Right. Exactly. He, he don't even conceive of know church. It, right. Mm-hmm. Well, well, right, exactly. Yeah, and he's not sitting and, in a church pew either. <laughs> well, right. So, so while Irenaeus saw the fifth kingdom of Daniel as the body of Christians in the world, that, that was still far in his future, right? Yeah. And, and in part, he was correct, but those people are to be found that, that um, destroyed Rome as, as only as the stone cut out from a much greater mountain. They are the Germanic tribes which destroyed Rome and came. And, and the Saxon people, after the destruction of Rome, that they came to world hegemony, from, especially from the period of, of the Reformation, but even during the, the Holy Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And, and further discussion of this would probably best be reserved mm-hmm. for the appropriate places in the forthcoming chapter. But but that's it. The, the historical um, view of the fulfillment of the revelation is the oldest view, and, and the fools that call us preterists because we profess that most of the revelation has been fulfilled yeah. two thousand years later. Yeah. But well, of course, most of it's been fulfilled yeah. if it's taken historically, right? right. And, and those people simply don't know what a preterist is. Right. That the preterists really believe that preterism, true preterism, is the belief and that all scripture was fulfilled by 70 A.D. Right. And, and that's the preterism of V.S. Errol, who's a separatist, but mm-hmm. he's a preterist. Yes. And, and most mainstream, mainstream sects that embrace preterism. Right, right. There is a form of preterism that, that extends it beyond 70 A.D., but uh, they don't know what they're talking about either. <laughs> Historicism is the only interpretation of, of revelation that works. It's the only one. Well, well absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I like to, I have an, a, a little introduction for um, Revelation it. chapter six, and, and we're certainly not going to get through it tonight. Right. And, and I hope not because I haven't written my green horse notes yet. Right? <laughs> okay. The, the pale horse. But, uh, you, well, know what? you know what? It just occurred to me: the green horse is the last horse, right? Yes. Okay, because 
I know there are many who like to interpret the four horsemen of the apocalypse to, and put them in the end times that we're living in right now, okay? Uh, and then, you know, some people want to say, well, the black horse, well, the white horse, it's troublesome what that white horse would be. Uh, maybe Hitler? I don't know, okay? But it just occurred to me that that green horse, if, if he can project it into, the, into these times right now, might be the greens, right? <laughs> Because the greens are the new reds, you know. Well, well, you know, there's a lot of things that the four horsemen can be correlated to, right? right? But right. when we take the surrounding chapters of prophecy, when we take from, from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 11 mm -hmm. as one steady stream of, of, of images yes. of history, then we can't project them into the future. Right, and we will see that when we get, mm -hmm. we will see that very clearly when we get to chapters 9 and 10. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, yeah. it, yeah, it no. comes very clear yeah. when we get to chapters 9 and 10. Okay, I just want to add one caveat because I do believe that certain scriptures can have dual fulfillments, okay? I have just never seen a good dual fulfillment of the four horsemen and uh, Howard B. Rand was totally accurate when he put it in the past, as we will see. Okay. Well, well, right. I believe so, and and, mm -hmm. and I don't. I, I have comments on that, and, yeah. and uh, we'll we'll get to them as as I'm able to proceed. Yeah. And, and I'd rather keep my notes in order, right? Sure. Here in Revelation chapter six, we see the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. It is evident that these four horsemen represent four stages in the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. It can be argued that this vision of the four horsemen may mean something different. However, that argument becomes less plausible once we examine and interpret the chapters of the Revelation which follow Revelation chapter 6. Now, it is also evident that many elements in these four horsemen also accurately describe the development and the demise of the imperialist empires of modern times, uh -huh. including including the one that we live in right now. Right. But this is only because history repeats itself. That's and right. history repeats itself because men never learn to ignore <laughs> its lessons. Right. right? We exactly. never fail to ignore its lessons. Uh -huh. and, and if you don't know history, you can't learn from it. And and you might think you're you're a hot shot but you're only going to end up following the same mistakes that have been made in the past. Right. We see it time and again. Anybody that really understands history, read Plutarch's Wives, read Herodotus, right. and, and you'll see that men, right. men do it. And as I just men and make the same mistakes over and over again. And as I just said, the Greens are the new communists, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> well, right. Green is definitely the new red. There's, there's no doubt. They're, yeah. they're playing right into the hands of the, of the Bolshevik Jews. And, and um, if we would only learn from history, we would stop repeating its mistakes. However, people are always easily swayed by the empty promises of the short-sighted. And therefore, the short-sighted consistently prevail. That's right. And, and I made an example before of Franklin Roosevelt and the people that worshipped the government that sought government handouts. Yeah, you know, I I, I got to get maybe before this Revelation series is over, I'll go upstairs and look through my Livy notes and find the places where the people of the Roman Republic would hang a politician who promised anybody handouts because they understood that they were the ones paying for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that it for your intro?
Well, well, yes, that's it for my intro, but I have a lot of notes where we get past Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, let's go. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth to conquer, conquering and to conquer. Okay, so who's this white horse? Well, well, a lot of my notes are going to be the same, as, and, and some of them I've written out and some of them I haven't. And, and they're basically going to be very close to what Compare said, right? Okay. Because yeah. Compare and, and he followed Rand, Howard right. Rand. Compare and Rand are right together. And, and they were very much on the money about a lot of these. Mm-hmm. However, even Compare made this error. Most commentators date the Roman Empire to begin with the era of the Caesars, either with the dictatorship of Julius Caesar or the monarchical system set up under Octavian, who is later known as Augustus Caesar. This view is very skewed, and it demonstrates a very poor understanding of systems of government. The term empire is properly applied to a government which rules over more than one nation of people. And I'm going to quote the American Heritage College Dictionary, third edition. Quote, empire, 1A a political unit comprising a number of territories or nations ruled by a single supreme authority. That's how they define empire. By that measure, Rome became an empire in the 3rd century B.C. when it conquered and defeated all of the other tribes of the Italian peninsula, the Etruscans, the Sabines, the Samnites, and the Greeks of southern Italy and Sicily. By the end of the 2nd century B.C., Rome ruled all of Greece, Asia Minor, Sardinia, parts of Spain, and all of the formerly Phoenician areas of North Africa. While further expansion occurred in later periods of Roman history, this certainly marked the White Horse period and the time when Rome became an empire, whether the supreme ruling authority was a republican government or Mm -hmm. a dictatorship or a monarchy doesn't really matter. Now, this White Horse that the rider upon it has a bow, and as Compare explained, that that bow enabled him to make conquests afar off. Make so that yes. represents that the um, that this represents the expansion of Rome into an empire. A crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, and that he may conquer. Okay. And, okay. and the Romans did indeed do that. Yeah. Quick question. So when Rome, because they had several different forms of government as uh, Rome developed, that uh, when this rider on the horse wore a crown and uh, his arrow shot forth, is it historical? Is it historically true that the Roman expansion uh, was uh, taken you know, primarily through the emperors that we're talking about here? Well, well no, that's not really true. Okay. Uh, all right. Ro- Rome's okay, so government... we're talking about the general period, not the emperor period. Well, well, right. No, no, we're not even talking about, we're talking about the Republic period. Oh, the Republic, okay. Rome was a Republic, and and each, every two years, two two consuls were selected, Mm -hmm. were were elected by the people, and a Senate was elected by the people, and the two consuls were basically the the big cheeses of the empire, right? It it was a lot like (laughs) the Spartans. 
the Spartan two kings. Uh, the, the Spartans had two kings. Right. Well, well the, these the, these two consuls they conducted all of the public business and and they were the leaders of the nation. Okay. And, and they sought approval from the Senate for everything that they did. And, and usually when there was a war, one of them would marshal an army and go off to war. And, and if there was another war in another area, the other one would go. And, okay. and they led their armies. But, but they weren't but they weren't quite kings because they needed approval of the Senate. Uh-huh. Now, okay. when there was a war, they would elect one of the consuls to be dictator. <laughs> okay. Okay? And the Romans did that. That They did that from the time of the Celtic invasions of Rome and, and the wars they fought against the Samnites and the, and, and the Sabians. And, and the last time they did it was in the Punic Wars. Okay. And then they didn't do it for a hundred years. And, and I'll explain that when, when we talk about the, the Red Horse period. I, I have some notes on Sulla, right? Okay. Well, well, Sulla kind of made himself the dictator. But what would happen is in wartime, just like all the British chieftains would, would elect an, right. an Arvaragus to be the chief of chiefs, and, and the same thing with the Greeks. They, they recognized the need for this also. Sure. But when they, in, in the Persian Wars, they would elect, that they decided to elect an Athenian at, at, to be the master of the sea and a Spartan general to be the, the leader of their land forces, right? right. And, and he became basically a dictator during the course of the war. Right. Well, the it's Romans hard to were, make war with a committee. <laughs> right. Well, well, right. You can't. You can't yeah. do it. And people recognize that in many different places at an early time. The yeah. Greeks knew it. The Romans knew it. And, and the Britons knew it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so they would elect a dictator, the Romans, to conduct the war. And he would voluntarily step down. He was not allowed to come into Rome with, with his forces, with his soldiers, right? right? That's the whole story about Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Right. Washington wanted to step down, too. Right? Yeah, but, yes, he did. But he he became elected president. Yeah, they wanted to make yes. him a king. A lot of people don't, don't realize that, that. Yes, they, they did. They wanted to make him a king, but he refused. Yeah. Okay, wise, very good. Very wise. Yeah. Very wise. Well, well um, uh, Belisarius, the Italians wanted to make Belisarius a king and, instead of... And instead of Justinian, and he refused it too. Uh-huh. Other men have, have and, and we will see that Sulla made himself dictator of Rome, but he didn't. He didn't um, tyrannize it. He yeah. straightened it out, and then he resigned. <laughs> and, and that was a okay, shock to everybody, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, well um, basically, the Romans would appoint a dictator. The dictator would win the war, and then relinquish the authority and go yeah. back to being a. A, a consul, or, or if his term was expired, he would go into private life or, or whatever. Go back to that, the job. Um, right. Okay. That, that's how they expanded their empire, right? Right. That's right. That, that's and and then the the republic remained pretty much intact mm-hmm. until a civil war, and, and that begins the Red Horse period. And we'll talk about that next. Okay. Well, who was the in the in the person of the who was the first person? to take this role as the white horse with the crown upon his head. Do you, do you have any idea who that was? Well, well, I would have to read back in Livy, right, to okay. see who the first um, – I didn't do that much research in, in okay. preparation for this, but, but it would have to be in, in the 3rd century B.C. Uh-huh, right. But when the Roman – that is when the Roman people decided that they were going to 
take the hegemony of Italy and, and go out and, and start wars or, or mm. fight wars with all these other people. I mean, yeah. the Romans weren't always the aggressors, right. but they were often the aggressors. Okay, and and so. that, that's when they decided that they were going to become an empire. Right. That was in the 3rd century B.C. When, when they defeated the Etruscans, who, who I can never remember an account of the Etruscans threatening Italy, right? right. I, I can't offhand. But when they defeated the Etruscans and the Samnites and the Sabians, that made them an empire. Yeah. That's when they began to go out conquering and to conquer. That was the third century BC. And that period, that, that, what well, once they began that trend, it never ended sure. un- until the third century AD when they went on the defensive instead of on the offensive, right? Yes. But uh, even though this is imagery, we're simply, although the person's not named, the first person to receive this crown, the first person to sit on this white horse with a with an arrow. Uh, actually, there was a first Roman general to do this, right? And so that's who this is referring to. Maybe we can find out in a future episode uh, who that, you know, the name of this actual person. Okay, so this is the but one. The earliest famous conquering general I could name, I could think of was actually from the Gallic Wars, the Gallic invasions of Rome, 390 B.C. His name was Marcus Furius. Okay, Marcus Furius? <laughs> Marcus, and he was, he, he was 70 years old on a horse leading his troops oh, okay. to battle. Okay, very good. And it had to be a white horse, right? Couldn't have been anything um, as a white horse. Probably, but yeah. no, no, I don't know if it's really different, but he was, um, he, he repelled the Gauls. From well, well Rand says, They had actually sacked Rome in 390 right. B.C. Rand says that the generals always rode a white horse, just just because of the distinctiveness of the white horse, because the white well, well, horse... Well, I don't, yeah, right, I don't know if it's true of that early, early period, but... Uh-huh. but um, yeah, so all of this symbolism fits Rome perfectly. And it, yeah, it, it would certainly be true of Imperial Rome. Right. right. I, I would have no doubt. Yes, very good. Okay. All right, we only have about five minutes left. I'll read verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take the place from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So maybe we can just briefly identify this red horse. Well, well, this is the beginning of uh, this red horse. Had its rider has a crown, but it also has a a sword, and a sword is a close combat weapon. Right. So, so this indicates to me the beginning of the period of the civil wars of Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, Compare put these in, in the second, you know, the end of the first and, and the, the second century B.C. I, I can't put them there. Okay. They don't belong there. Okay. The first great civil war in Rome, and, and I'll go into much more detail next week, but the first great civil war in Rome was, was the, um, the, the war fought, between the followers of Sulla and the followers of Gaius Marius, which took place from 88 to 87 B.C. Okay. Now, now, there was a whole long string. I have a list of like six or seven major civil wars between that time and the time of Augustus. Okay. That has to be the Red Horse period. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, Roman con- Civil wars are exceptionally continue. bloody. Yeah. Well, well, yes, and, and those wars were exceptionally bloody. We'll get a full rundown on them next week. Yeah. But Roman expansion did continue. 
And in other words, the white horse didn't die and the red horse come, right? Right. The, the white horse and the red horse, they, they had a maybe a 100-year period, 150-year period where they overlapped because Roman expansion continued in, into the in well past the first century A.D. Right. I mean, well into the first century A.D. and, and perhaps even beyond that and, 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 in some areas. Yes, yes. Okay, I think uh, uh, that's a pretty good you know, capsule summary of the first two horses, and uh, somebody uh, commented about the white horse, that Yahshua is uh, also a white horse, but that's in the end times, okay? Well, well right, that's yeah. long after this. Yeah. And we'll, when we go through the um, the white horses and the fall of run, and the red horse and the black horse and the green horse right. and the fall of run, <laughs> and, and then we see that Revelation chapter 9 it is a perfect exposition of the Arabic and Turkish conquest of right. the white world, right. and Revelation chapter 10 is an exhibition Yes. Of the Reformation. Right. And, and chapter uh-huh. 11. Chapter 11, I, I will demonstrate, is also associated with the Reformation and the two witnesses. And Compare got into that also. Right. But, but I can build on that. And, and um, we'll see that this history is all in the past. Right. And so as I uh, spoke about earlier, the book of Revelation has several stops and starts. But the general chronology of you know that we start here with the first Roman general riding a white horse. Uh, what what year was that? Three hundred BC? Did you say? Yeah. Well, well, the third century BC. Was okay, the sometime in the third century Conflict. BC. And the the uh, then, then the Book of Revelation from chapter six on toward the very end is a chronological prophetic record of history. From let's say 250 BC, whenever that first general got on that first white horse wearing a crown, right? And uh, it's a chronological history, a prophetic history from that point forward, naming the major aspects of history from that point forward. It's an absolutely incredible prophetic record, absolutely incredible, and uh, we hope to establish that for everybody listening to this series. And so, uh, but we just briefly talked now about the red horse. We'll talk about the red horse in greater detail uh, a couple of weeks from now, okay? Uh, Bill and uh, Clifton are going to be uh, handling next Friday and Saturday and uh, while I'm gone. And then uh, tomorrow, my guest will be Mike Hallamore of Kingdom Identity Ministries. And then, uh, you know, I'll be back uh, the weekend after that, okay? So have a good time uh, next weekend, Bill, and, and I think you and Greg are going to do uh, – uh, the Testament of Joseph, at least a portion of it, because it's very long, next Sunday. Okay? Yes, praise Yahweh. All right, praise Yahweh. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we, uh, we're we going to have a lot of fun with the prophecies here of the book of Revelation, because the vast majority of them have been fulfilled, except those that are relating directly to the end times. And that's what we'll ultimately get to. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh bless. Uh, I would like to make one announcement real quick. Oh, okay. And that's that um, Mike Delaney, his two-year-old son, is in a hospital. Oh, okay. Well, with a, um, a, a very, very dangerous, very bad upper res- or respiratory infection. That They're not sure exactly what it is. But okay. if, if people would just keep him in their thoughts. All right, yeah. I hope they didn't get him vaccinated. <laughs> if he's well, well, right. He has not been. But, Good. But, and, and it's odd that they're so secluded in the area where they live in that, that, that he acquired this illness. But okay. if people would simply – a lot of the people here know Mike, and, and if they would keep him in their thoughts, it would yeah. probably okay. help. Yes, amen to that. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, pray for uh, 
Mike Delaney's son, and uh, you know, hopefully the, there won't be any real problems there because uh, he's a good patriot. Okay, thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Yahweh bless everybody.